Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 74 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about life in the Spirit. Let's dive in. If you listen to last week's podcast, episode number 73, I played for you an audio that I gave during the cross-style training camp this past June, and it was all on this idea of the mysterious bride in Scripture. Basically, I just walked through Scripture and showed what Paul says in Ephesians as the mystery hidden. Now, we know that the mystery hidden for ages and generations is Christ in us, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that there is this mystery, which is a man is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He said, this is a profound mystery, but I speak concerning Jesus and the church. So basically, it was this sermon walking through the bride of Christ all throughout scripture. And it really is just a powerful concept. And again, we were just scratching the very tippity top of the iceberg of that concept in all the scripture, but it is profound. Well, during that same training camp week, that conference, I also gave a teaching session on life in the spirit. Throughout the week, we have training sessions in the morning. They're more teaching sessions. We pull out the whiteboard and we actually walk through key concepts of the Christian life. Well, I got to teach one of those mornings and I was speaking primarily on this topic of life in the spirit. What does it mean to live really sourced by the spirit of God? What does it mean to live resourced and focused upon and, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit? So I decided that since I played last week's uh, in last week's podcast, I played you the sermon I gave. I figured, well, why not give one more enunciation and play the audio clip from that session? Now, I do use a whiteboard in this session. It's actually kind of a TV whiteboard kind of a <laughs> kind of a thing. Anyway, um, so I want to let you know that if you would rather watch the video version of this teaching session, you can do so by going to the show notes for this episode at deeperchristian.com forward slash 74. Now, you can either watch the video or you can just listen to it, but just note that there's times where I'm writing on the board and therefore if it sounds kind of weird or I'm not talking, it's probably because I'm doing something on the whiteboard. All that to be said, we're going to be looking at 
being filled with the Spirit of God. And what does it mean to not just attempt to be like Jesus? So oftentimes we talk about this idea of what would Jesus do and, and how, how am I going to muster up the strength and the ability to act and behave like Jesus? When the reality is you can't. And the illustration I'm going to give in the message is that of a parrot. Well, I don't want to give it away. So let's just dive in and listen to this teaching session that I gave at the Crossdale Training Camp this past June called Life in the Spirit. Uh, I want to talk about this idea of life in the Spirit. And it's interesting that uh, Stephen was poking at this a lot yesterday morning. And, and obviously, if you've been around our circles, we talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, but I want to talk about what does it look like to actually live in the midst of the reality of the Spirit of God. And just almost lay a foundation. It, it is interesting that uh, I feel like as a church culture, we have, we're beginning to shift. Uh, it seems like when I was growing up, uh, you know, we rarely ever talked about the Spirit. And in fact, it's almost like it was, let's not talk about it because it's weird and creepy. And in fact, back then we called it the Holy Ghost, which is even more bizarre. And, uh, and so why would we want to talk about it? And it seems like uh, we may have, we've almost like shifted the other direction. And I'd almost say maybe we're talking, I don't know if you can talk about it too much. But, uh, but, but it's almost like there's this huge overemphasis in the church today, which maybe is a good thing. But just to kind of set a stage and just to let you know where I'm coming from at least, when we're talking about life in the Spirit, we're merely talking about life in Jesus. Because you recognize that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. That if you're going to be in Christ and he's going to be in you, he's not physically in you. <laughs> Are you awake? I mean, does this make sense? Like he literally physically cannot be in you. Just like I cannot literally physically be in you, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, we are talking about the literal Jesus, right? And he has come to indwell your life. That if you call yourself a Christian, then the God out there has come to dwell in your life in here. But it's not, it's not physical in the sense of the physical Jesus. That's, it is, but it's not. He is sending his spirit. It is his spirit. Which is no different than the person. It's identical. And, and Jeremiah was, was talking yesterday about the Godhead thing, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And you realize they act the same, think the same, talk the same. They are the same. They're different, but they're the one. Right? So if the Son is sending the Spirit to live inside of you, this is not, oh, Jesus likes blue, the Holy Spirit likes red. That's not, that's not true. They both like blue. Isn't that right, Stephen? Amen. I mean, it's... <laughs> <clears throat> and they obviously have blue eyes. <clears throat> anyway, so, so just to lay a groundwork, when we're talking about the fact that you are to be filled, and by the way, you cannot be a Christian and not be filled. That if you are a Christian, you are filled. So you cannot say, well, I'm a Christian, but I haven't yet been filled. That's impossible. Because you realize, as Paul would say, dead things have gone away, new things. You are a brand new creation. And as we were talking about last night, the reality of the cross is, is that he has really paid for your sin and died for you so that you could enter into a brand new reality, which Paul consistently says throughout his letters, that your position, that your life is now what he would call in Christ. And that there is a dual relationship in this idea of in 
right? So Jesus is in you, and you are in Jesus. In other words, my life is in him. My position is him. And yet, while that's taking place, his life, strangely enough, is inside of me. Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And he indwells you. So in Ephesians chapter 2, your position is seated in the heavenly realm, smack dab in the middle of Jesus, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And everything that is beneath his feet is beneath your feet. Why? Because you are his body. And so the reality is that if something can't touch Jesus, it can't touch you. Which means you do not have to give in to sin. You do not have to give in to lust. You do not have to give in to defeat. You, do, hey, you can live in peace and freedom and joy and life and, and victory. And Why? Because you were seated in Christ. You have a brand new identity. You were not who you once were. Well, but you don't understand my background. You don't understand your position. I don't care what happened in your past. I care, but I don't care. There's things that's happened in my past, and I don't even care about those. Because you realize those do not define my life. It's interesting. Uh, this, this idea of identity has been really heavy on my mind the last couple of months. Do you realize that your identity has radically shifted in Jesus? That, that you cannot be the same person you once were. You can't talk the same, act the same, though you may look the same. You are not the same. Why? Because you have a whole different identity, which is what I want to talk about. Because the reality is that if you call yourself a Christian, you must be filled with the Spirit. But what does that look like? So let's talk through this. So Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> I was trying to poke at this last night a little bit, and I want to kind of expand on this. This is such a neat thought to me. There are only four chapters in all of Scripture that are not tainted by sin. What I mean by that is that there are only four chapters that are written outside of the, of the sin reality. Well, let me explain this. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have all the stuff that happened before sin entered the world. Is that an okay statement? Everyone good so far? So sin enters into chapter 3. Then what you have in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what you have is all the stuff that happens after Christ has come and he cleans up the whole mess. And now he's talking about the new Jerusalem and the new reality. And it's after sin stuff. Right? And everything that happens between these, these two sections is basically God's plan and his redemptive process leading all the way up to Jesus Christ and the cross so that he might purchase you and so that he can have a bride so that you can be filled with him and glorify him so the entire universe can see Jesus Christ in and through your life. But everything in between here has been marred by sin. Everyone checking so far? Did you know this is so, this is so beautiful? There are numerous themes in Genesis 1 and 2 that all, all find its fulfillment in Revelation 21, 22. And if you had time, I encourage you to do a study. For example, Genesis 1 and 2 opens with a man who meets this woman, and they have a wedding. Revelation 21, 22, do you know what you see? You have a man, we talked about it last night, 
who has a woman, and there's this wedding supper of the Lamb. Isn't that neat? Uh, there's a place, there's a, there's a tree of life in Genesis 1 and 2. Guess what you see in Revelation 21 22? A tree of life. There's a river in Genesis 1 and 2 that interestingly somehow is producing gold, pearl, and precious stones. And then what you see in Revelation 21 and 22 is that you have this river coming out of the very throne room of God and the whole city, do you know what it's built out of? Gold, pearl, precious stones. Uh, you have things like, uh, what's another one? Uh, they're all slipping out of my mind. Anyway, there's like, there's, there's dozens of these. And you can like trace them and that, that they start here, they find fulfillment here. So you need to study that out. It's really neat. Uh, start to the garden. Right? Everything starts in the garden. Interestingly, we don't have a garden in Revelation 21, 22. Do you know what the garden has become? A city. I'll let you ponder all this later. So Genesis 1 and 2. <clears throat> What's also interesting about Genesis 1 and 2 is that when you walk through the creation account, even before the need of redemption, because there was no need of redemption until chapter 3. That's when sin entered in. But even before redemption was needed, Christ only laid the foundation for redemption in Genesis 1 and 2. And even the creation account and what took place on each of the seven days of creation is a picture of God's redemption, folks. In fact, Paul points back there all the time and says, remember that? That's what he's doing in you. When he says that, hey, you are a brand new creation, he's not saying, oh, what's a, what's a good word? Oh, creation. He's saying, look back at creation. Do you know what creation's all about? Look at Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Look at verse 2. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And really the idea here is that there's chaos. There's entropy. There's darkness. There's just... And what does God do in the middle of that? Well, verse 3 says that he spoke light into the midst of darkness. He spoke light in the midst of entropy. He spoke light. If you don't know what entropy means, uh, entropy means things get worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, for example, my bedroom, when I was a, growing up as a kid, my mom would say, clean your room. And so I would clean up my room. And it wasn't my fault, but about a day later, entropy happened. <laughs> it was clean, but it became... So a day later, she's like, I told you to clean your room. I said, I did clean my room yesterday. Well, why isn't it clean? Entropy. <laughs> right? But that's what was taking place. Isn't it interesting? And, and I can show you this. this. This shows up several times in Genesis chapter 1. But God speaks into the entropy and brings about restoration. And you realize what he's doing over the six days of creation is he's speaking in a chaos, bringing about order. Speaking into that chaos, bringing about order. Speaking in a chaos, bringing about order. And he's getting greater and greater order into the point at the end of day six, there's no more need because it's perfect. It has been fully restored. Do you know what God's done in your life? Here's your life full of darkness and entropy and chaos and problems. Do you know what God has done? He has spoke light into the midst of your life. Do you know who the light is? Jesus. And Jesus has come into your life and has really brought forth life and redemption and salvation. But your life isn't where it's supposed to be yet. So what does he do? He then speaks into that chaos and brings about a measure of order and redemption. And then he speaks into this and brings about another level. And this is called sanctification, folks. And, and you were working through a process of sanctification where, hey, but there's coming a day in the eternities where, man, you, you're not going to need that anymore. 
Why? Because he's fully redeemed you and fully sanctified you and that there's that ultimate sanctification concept. Does that make sense? So, so he's even laying that groundwork even before there's even need of that, which I just think is beautiful. So all that being said, I want to walk through really quickly the days of creation with you. I want to show you something. It's, I just think it's beautiful. On day one, God speaks in a darkness and creates light. On day two, God speaks and separates the waters from the waters and really have the firmament thing. And it's really the sky and the waters are separated. <clears throat> On day three, uh, he takes and makes land out of the water. And then there's all the herbs, the plants, the grass, the trees, all that kind of stuff. Day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And of course, he tells us that that is for knowing seasons and times and all that kind of stuff, which is really cool too. Uh, day number five, <clears throat> he creates birds and fish and all the sea creatures. Day six, he creates all the animals and he climaxes... What'd you say? Beasts. 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 Oh, bees. Oh. <laughs> I just thought you said beast. I'm like, yes, he made Jeremiah. <laughs> it's important. <clears throat> so he created animals, bees and man. And then on day seven, he rested. Now, a couple of things just to really, just to quickly note. And I mentioned this before. Isn't it interesting that on day one he creates light, and then on day four he created the very thing that encompasses the light, or holds the light, or fills up the light. On, on day two he created the sky and the water, and then on day five he created things that fills up the sky and the water. On day three he created the land, and then he filled, on, on day six filled, created that which filled up the land. I just think that's kind of neat. But all that to be said, What's introduced through that whole process is that, and don't go crazy with this, but there are seven life forms that are being articulated in the passage. So if you begin to look at this, <clears throat> you have in verse 1, in the beginning, God, which is the word Elohim. By the way, if you want a fun Christophany in that, uh, the word there for beginning, bereshit, uh, bereshit means beginning in Hebrew, it can also be translated, this is so brilliant to me. It can also be translated through the firstborn. Think about this. Through the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Colossians, Paul says, you know who created everything? Jesus, the firstborn. And that word, Bereshit, actually is legitimately translated through the firstborn. That's amazing to me. And then it says, through the firstborn, God, which is the word Elohim, which is, which is plural. It's talking about the Trinity. And then there's a word in Hebrew that is not translated right after the word God. And it's Aleph Bet. Sorry, Aleph Tav. And Aleph Tav is the very first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But there's no word. I mean, it's not a word. It makes no sense. But yet it's in the, it's in the Hebrew. And no one translates it. Because what, what do you translate it to? 
a different translation would be, if you put it in English, it would be, in the beginning, or better sheets, or through the firstborn, God, Elohim, A-Z. That's like what we would say. But if you think about it in Greek, what you would say is, in the beginning, Elohim, Alpha, and the Omega, created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that awesome? That was bonus. That isn't even a part of the lesson. <laughs> so, verse 1, we're introduced to this very first life form, if you want to say it that way. And it's God. And you realize that God is the highest life. That there is no life outside of him. That there's no one above him. That he is the, the pinnacle of all life. Is everyone okay? All right. Then we're introduced. And, and I'm going to work from the bottom up if that's okay. So at the very bottom, we're told that God creates plant life. Right? He created all the plants, the herbs, the trees, all that kind of stuff. And that is a life. It's not a thinking life. It doesn't have a mind, right? Venus flytraps, I don't know, they might have a mind. But, but there's, no, there's no life in, this, in that kind of a sense, but there is life. Is that legitimate? Uh, right above that, we have fish life. Which you realize is one step higher. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And then you have birds, which are a little smarter than fish. Some of them. The dodo didn't do too well. <clears throat> and then above the birds, you have all the land animals. Right? And then we have the pinnacle of the creation, which would be humanity. Women don't get offended. I wrote man, but I'm talking about humanity here. Right? And then in chapter 3, we're introduced to the other one, which would be you're like, I don't know. I'm going to say angelic. That's going to be my word. Okay? Because in, in chapter 3, we're introduced to Satan. And we recognize that Satan is, a, is, by the way, he's not an angel. He's a cherub. Which means every picture you've had of Satan is wrong. Because a, a, a cherub has feet with hooves. I mean, it's hoof feet. Hands like a man. He has four faces. There's a face of an ox, a face of a man, a face of a lion, a face of an eagle. And Ezekiel says that the normal face of a cherub is that of an ox. So if you're going to draw a picture of Satan, what you really need to have is calf hooves, hands like a man, and if you're going to show a face, it should probably look like an ox. According to the passage, but he has four faces. Uh, there's four wings. Angels don't have wings. You can, sorry I'm ruining all your theology, but you can study this out. And angels don't sing, by the way. That ticks me off, but they don't sing. There's no passage in scripture where angels sing. Not a single one. Now they may sing, but there's no record of it. Isn't that interesting? Every Christmas cantata I'd ever been to, <laughs> angel comes out of the ceiling, or if you couldn't afford that, they would walk out, and they always sing. <laughs> right? Biblically, they don't sing. They always speak. They're crying out in the temple, holy, holy, holy. They came to Bethlehem and to the shepherds, and they spoke. They didn't sing. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, that probably means nothing to you. But, but we have this angelic realm. And we at least know that there are three elements in this, or there's three tiers. We have the angels, which apparently look like us, right? They, I mean, they can pop in and out apparently, but they look like us because we can entertain them without knowing them, right? In other words, I've never seen a guy with wings like, <laughs> you must be a guy, right? Or, oh, you must be an angel. No, obviously, 
they must look like us. Then you have the seraphim and you have the cherubim. And so there's at least three aspects of this. But there's, there's seven life forms. Does that make sense? Just like there's a lot of animals, there, there may be tons of angelic things. And we'll get to heaven like, whoa, that's so cool. But who knows? Everyone good so far? All right. So there's seven life forms. You realize you are not at the top. You may think you're at the top, but you are not at the top. And what we are told in a verse 26 through 28 of chapter, of chapter 1 is that man is to subdue and rule the life forms beneath him. That he's laid to have dominion over the, over the earth and is laid to have oversight or, or control or authority. Right? You may read it. Uh, verse 20. Uh, verse 26, uh, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creeps on the earth. And then God blessed him in verse 28 and says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so man does not have authority above him. He's under authority, and yet he has authority over that which is beneath him. Everyone good so far? All right. So hold on to this idea. <clears throat> We're going to come back to it in just a second. God takes man and puts him in the garden. And it says that when he was in the garden, <clears throat> that there were two trees. That there were two distinct trees. Now, we actually know there were far more than two trees in the garden because they could eat of any of the trees. But they're primarily, or it's notated in chapter 2, verse, let's see, where is it at? Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, that there is two distinct trees. So, so look at verse chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Uh, and that man became a living being, literally a soul. Uh, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. And the tree of life, was also in the midst of the garden, along with a, tr with a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're told there are two trees. There is the tree of life, and there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And there's a distinct clarity. Do not partake of this tree. Then you could say, well, why did God put it there in the first place? <laughs> you need a choice, folks. And when you actually see what the choice is, it's actually phenomenal. Because it is the same choice that you have to face every single day of your life. And your choice is, am I going to partake of life or am I going to partake of this? Now, it's interesting. We actually have no record of Adam actually partaking of the life, the tree of life. Now, he may have. Maybe. But I would like to make a proposal to you that when we're talking about the tree of life, we're not just, was it a physical tree? I have no doubt that it was. But if I could propose to you what it's really pointing to is not a physical tree, we're really talking about a person. That he is the tree of life. And that you must partake of him if you want life. In fact, when you get into the New Testament, that is actually the tone. That he himself is life. 
that you'll never have life outside of him. But what have you done? You have partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in chapter 3, the servant comes to the woman and says, hey, why don't you take some food? And she goes, oh, God said don't eat it. In fact, he said don't even touch it, which is not true because God never said that. So she spoke a lie, but it probably makes sense. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. The likelihood is, is she never received the command from God. Adam did. And so it seems like, presumably, if I was Adam, what I would have done is, you know, Eve was created. And I would have said, Eve, uh, God said, don't eat of this tree. So let's make a rule. Don't touch it. <laughs> haven't you done that? Haven't you done that in your own life? I mean, how many times have you looked at some temptation and you were just like, oh, I just want to like, just touch it. I won't eat it though. That doesn't help you. That doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, it's better. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, don't go into the bar. I mean, that's just wisdom. So, I mean, I like to at least give her the benefit of the doubt that at least maybe been a good motive. But she spoke a lie. She was deceived, according to Paul in 1 Timothy, and she gave in and she ate the fruit. Now, we, we make this such a big deal, and it is a big deal, but we make this such an evil thing. <clears throat> but do you know what the name of this tree is? It is the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that fascinating? And you're like, well, didn't, didn't they already know between good and evil? Probably. Well, wouldn't they have known good and evil had they not partaken the tree? Yeah. Why? Because they would have lived by a whole different lifestyle. Do you realize if you ate of this tree, you would know what is good and evil? Wouldn't you? In a sense that if you were filled with, a, with the Spirit of God, if you were filled with the very presence of God himself, would he not explain, would he not reveal, would he not guide and direct you into what is good and stay away from that which is evil? Well, of course he would. So what is this tree all about? And Stephen was talking about this yesterday, but this tree is all about independence. See, this tree says, God, I'm not interested in your opinion. What I'm actually interested in is I want to decide what is good and evil. That I'm going to determine in my own knowledge what is good and evil. That I'm not interested in your opinion. I'm going to decide and I'm going to partake of this so that I know in and of myself what is good and I'm going to decide what's good and evil. But you would have known that had you partaken of the life. Because if you were partaking of the life of Christ, you would automatically know, I can prove this to you. Hey, if you're smack dab in the middle of Jesus, there are things you will not want to do. Well, are they bad and evil? Maybe, maybe not. But why don't you want to do it? Because I'm, I'm a different person. Why don't you look at pornography? Do you want to look at pornography? Maybe back in the day, and I did look at a lot of pornography. Well, what changed? God got a hold of me. And I'm not the same person. So if you present that to me, it's like, why would I want that? I have something better. It's Jesus. Well, how do you know if that's good or bad? I didn't, I didn't have to read a book. This is bad. Why? Because he's changing me. And he's leading me into all righteousness. And you realize that if I'd be filled with the Spirit of God, I would not only have life, but I would, I would have knowledge of good and evil. But not because I'm determining what's good and evil. It's because he is doing that in my life. Do you realize that every time that you partake in this, which you do, this is normal humanity now. We live independent. 
Do you realize that the Bible is really strong on the idea of you, in and of yourself, cannot do this properly. That you cannot determine good and evil. Because you'll always choose the wrong thing. In fact, the Old Testament proves that over and over and over again. And if you just want a couple of verses, Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25 say the exact same thing. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Hey, you can decide if you want to, but you know where it's going to lead? Death. Do you know what happened when they ended this tree? Death. Because you're not made to live independent. Uh, Judges 17.6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet Judges makes it very clear what was right and good in their own eyes was actually evil. Uh, 1 Kings 15.5, speaking about David, I love this passage, it says David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of his life and did not turn aside from anything that God commanded all the days of his life, except one time in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Do you know what that says? The way that David lived. See, David was constantly living from this reality of, oh God, can I have your perspective? God, would you give me insight? God, how do you want to handle this situation? God, what do you want to do in this moment? God, how, how do you want to do, you know, handle this thing over here? And he was always living by the divine perspective of God. Except there's this one time he says, you know what? I'm going to turn within myself. I'm going to reason within my own ability. I'm going to uh, take counsel within myself and say, self, what do you want to do in this situation? And I'm going to determine what's good and what's evil. <gasps> there's this woman right down there. I'm going to go sleep with her. I'm going to kill her husband, which was my best friend, by the way. And then, hey, then, and by the way, that destroyed the kingdom, his family, Israel divided because of all that. If you trace the, just the, the root of all that. And you can say, well, it was just one little sin. No. It's not just one little sin, whoops, kind of stuff. This is, hey, when you turn into your own perspective, when you turn into your own life and start reasoning from your own living, it will always produce death. Because it's this. But you are not called to live here. You are called to live by the tree of life, which is really a person. Everyone still good? Now, for the sake of time, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to skip over the fact that Jesus is the tree of life. And you can study that out, or you can just take my word for it. But when you get into the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of John, John is just, or you can talk to Jeremiah about this too, John is just going crazy about the fact that Jesus is life itself. And again, this is speculation, but it seems like had they never partaken of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, and they would have partaken of the tree of life, my guess is at some point that would have been revealed as you're really partaking of Jesus. Do you have the microphone? This is the driving force of the school. Mm -hmm. The minute you get into academics in the normal college, you are getting into knowledge without Jesus. And we must not have a school that is knowledge and academics and information outside of the saturation in the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the one who mentioned that 
religion and the church is basically this being produced. Because you realize when you come to church, we're basically teaching you, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. What is that? It's a knowledge of good and evil. But that's, but that's not Christianity. Uh, and I fully agree with Stephen. Uh, in terms of academics, you, you cannot live academically here. And you may have a whole bunch of information, but you will die. Uh, which is why some of the most spiritually anemic people are the ones who go to seminary. It's because it's all here and not life. Because life is a person. Uh, this is all about living water stuff. Not dead, still water. Living water. Jesus himself is our living water. He is life. In fact, John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief came but to still kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life. And not just any kind of life, the highest life. It is the superlative life. It is life abundant. Do you realize that God is the superior, supernatural, highest life form? Think about this. Yeah. Which is a great, great thought because I was just about to bring up WWJD. <clears throat> so thank you. Think about this. So when I was a teenager, the bracelets, WWJD, was the big thing. And they are sadly still making them. <clears throat> so they're not leftovers, uh, just to let you know. And when Charles Sheldon wrote his book in his steps back in the 1800s, it was, it, was a, it was a bestseller. But it is not biblical. Why? <laughs> just think about this. God has a superlative life. He is the highest life form, right? We are two life forms beneath him. So could you imagine, which goes back to Jesus, how did Jesus do what he did? Well, he's God. Of course he is. And as Stephen has told us year after year after year, Jesus did not do what he did because he's God, though he is God. He did what he did because he's a man filled with God. If you want a picture of that, I love this illustration <clears throat> of a lamp. What does a lamp do? Oh, I buy this lamp. I bring it into my house. I plug it in. I have everyone come over for dinner. And I say, "Woo! look at the lamp. And it starts getting dusk. And everyone's going, all right, we're excited. And I says, isn't the lamp amazing? I mean, it just fits with all the decor. And it's just, whoa, this is exciting. And it gets dark. And they go, turn it on. I go, no, 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 that's not what it's used for. No, it's there for looks. And of course, if you were there, you'd be like, you're an idiot. I go, of course. But do you realize that the lamp only has value because of what it displays? Now, when you look at a lamp, what is it that you see? And you say, well, I see light. No, you don't. You do see light. But what you're actually seeing is electricity being demonstrated. And of course, you're smart. And you say, well, I can't see electricity. You're right. But when a lamp is plugged into a power source and the electricity comes through the wire up into the lamp, what is demonstrated is electricity. And you are seeing the invisible made visible. Does that make sense? Do you know what Christ was? He was a lamp. He was a vessel. 
Here he is, he's walking around earth and he's doing all these crazy things. He's healing people, talking beyond, I mean, what we would normally, I mean, everyone's astonished, right? I mean, he's doing all this. He walked on water. Well, how did he do that? He's God. Peter walked on water. He's not God. How did Jesus do what he did? Well, obviously the miracles were, you know, he was God. Yeah, but Jesus says you can do even greater things in these than what I'm doing. So if he did what he, if he was God and only did what he did because he's God, then you have no access to it because you're not God. So how do you have, how can you do greater things? Do you know what Jesus says? He says, hey, do you know what my power source is connected to? The Father. That I'm connected to the Father. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. So how I am living is by the life of the Father via the Holy Spirit. You with me? So I'm not living my own life. I'm allowing his life to be lived in and through me. And of course, we've used countless illustrations of the glove. Uh, my favorite is the dancing, right? If you, you ever gone on a dance, which you probably haven't because you're Christians, right? But at one point, I took, I took some dancing lessons when I was in seminary. It's a long story. Uh, re really quickly, I'll, I'll, so you don't think I'm awkward here. It is awkward, but... Uh, I had a really close friend. We were just, it was very platonic. It wasn't romantic at all. But she was a big dancer. And she says, Nathan, there's this dance I've always wanted to try. And there's these dancing lessons. Uh, please, could, could, you, could you come with me? You have to take it with a partner. You just can't show up. And I said, look, I, I don't dance. I can't dance. I wish I could dance. I love ballroom dance. I love just the concept. I think it's so beautiful. I can't. I want to. I can't. She goes, I'll pay for it. I said, okay, I'll try. And... and <laughs> And she came back to me the next day and said, uh, I need to confess to you. She goes, I forgot to tell you what kind of dance it is. It's not just any kind of dance. It's the Argentinian tango. <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know ballroom. I said, oh, I don't, okay, sure. And she goes, well, it's supposed to be the most sensual form of couples dancing. And I was like, <laughs> like, I am in seminary and I'm a Christian and, and I am not married. So we went, and <laughs> and we were learning how to dance. It was really interesting. In, in Argentine tango, uh, you're, you're like here, and she's like right here, okay? <laughs> and it's interesting to me, the, the, first, the first couple of days was rather awkward because they teach you how to walk, and, but by about halfway through it, it's interesting. As a man, I take the lead, which means I, t I push off. And somehow, she has to know, because we don't talk to each other, it's not like, I'm going left, you go right. All right, go, right? <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not how you dance. When you dance, I take a step, and she just has to know. She has to respond to me dancing. So I initiate, she responds. I initiate, she responds. I initiate, she responds. And it becomes this beautiful picture. That's Christianity, folks. That here you are, it's not like you're sitting down on the side and Jesus is doing all the action. You are fully participating. But here you are in this Argentinian tango dance of love with Jesus. And he initiates, you are to respond. And he initiates and you are to respond. And he initiates and you are to respond. And you are fully interacting, you're fully, but you are not in charge. That's beautiful. Do you realize that's how Jesus lived? He was a lamp Connected to a power source, living by the life of the Father. Do you know how you are to live? Jesus says you are to live by my life. So just as I was being filled with the Father via the Spirit, you're going to be filled with me via the Spirit. And now you and I are going to be in this Argentino Tango dance of love, and you're going to be connected to a power source. So you are a lamp. You cannot, in and of your own ability, produce light. You can't. 
Do you realize that in and of your own self, you cannot live out the Christian life? One of my all-time favorite quotes is by an old man by the name of Ian Thomas, who's one of my all-time favorites. I love Ian Thomas to death. If you can read his books or listen to his sermons, do it. Ian Thomas said this, if, you are living, if, if your Christianity can be explained in terms of you, whether it be your strength, your willpower, your talent, your money, your resource, your whatever, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. Because the only explanation for your life is supposed to be Jesus. That someone looks at your lamp. Do you realize that when you're trying to produce Christianity in and of, in and of yourself, it's like you holding up a piece of yellow paper saying, Look, light! No, that's a piece of yellow paper. Turn off the lights. There's nothing coming out of you. That if you're trying to live out Christianity because of, oh, I'll grit my teeth and I'll pull this thing off. That's not Christianity. Christianity is being filled with a power source that is not you. And when that power source is flowing through you, something's going to be demonstrated to the whole world, which is God's purpose for you. You are a lamp connected to a power source. Be filled with him. And you realize that if I, as a man, try to live like God, and so here I am wearing the WWJD bracelet. Do you realize I cannot do this? He is, he is too far above me. I cannot produce this thing. It would be like two life forms below you trying to be a man. Could you imagine you go up to this parrot? Parrot, be like a human. He goes, no worries, no worries. W-W-H-D. What would a human do? Every day I wake up and I go, oh, what do they do? Oh, all right, they sing. I can sing. I'm a parrot. I can talk. Talk, 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 talk. All right. Uh, now I want you to eat like a man. I don't know how to do that. Hey, I want you to write a note. All right, I'll try to do that. Do you realize a parrot can mimic but cannot be a man? Why? Because it's two life forms beneath him. And, he, and, and, and hey, the bird can wear the bracelet all it wants to. That doesn't mean he's going to become a human. And you realize that as a human, you can wear the bracelet. That doesn't mean you have this. Because the only way that you're going to have this pulled off in your life is when he comes to indwell it. So this, you cannot pull this off by WWJD. Jesus did not walk around with a WWFD bracelet on himself. And everywhere he's like, what would the Father do? <laughs> no, he was filled with the Father. And he knew the nature of the Father. Which is why we're consistently saying you've got to be in the Word. Why? Because if you're not in here, you don't know his nature. If you're not in here, you don't know what he acts like or talks like or thinks like. Or act. You want to get to know him? Get in the book. If you want more of his life? Get to know him. This isn't, well, what would I want him to be? And I'll try to be like that. This is, why don't you actually get to know him and let his life begin to fill you? Which goes back to this whole idea that Stephen was talking about yesterday morning about dependency. See, you are not called to live independent. This is not you. You're called to be dependent. And you realize that if you're going to eat of the tree of life, what you're basically saying is, God, I'm dependent upon you. You are my life. I'm going to trust you. You're going to have to produce this thing and, and you're going to have to pull this off. What if you would live there all the time? What if you could just live in the reality that his spirit is filling you and he's changing you and he's molding you and shaping you like the image of Jesus? And This isn't a grit your teeth and pull it off thing. This is, hey, this is not, I'm going to decide what's good and evil. This is, hey, I'm, he's actually common to invade my life 
So this isn't mimic him. This is let him live out his life in and through me. That you are to be the visible representation of the invisible. You as a lamp are to demonstrate electricity to your world. And when someone looks at you, they go, there's light. There's light in you. That you can't fake that. How, How do you have that? It's not me. And as Ian Thomas said, again, the only explanation for your life is to be Jesus. That someone looks at you, they can't explain how you're living in any other way than Jesus Christ. That's a Christian because they're filled with the Spirit of God. Well, sorry, there's no time for questions. But let's pray. Uh, Lord, oh, we need you. Uh, Lord, I don't want to try to pull something off in my own strength or my own ability. I want you to come in and source my life. I want you to merge with my life. I want you to get all wrapped up and have an Argentinian tangled dance of love with you where you're initiating and I'm responding and you're pulling something off in and through my life and, and I'm not deciding how to live. I'm not deciding what's good and right and proper. But Lord, somehow you, who's so far above who I am, has come to live and dwell within me. Oh, would you pull that off, Jesus, and radically change not only my life, but my family, my church, my town, and my world because of it. Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name we pray. Well, again, I just want to encourage you that the Christian life is not about mimicking. It's not trying to parrot the behavior and the attitude and the lifestyle and the mindset of God. It's allowing him to actually come into our lives and produce that in and through us. See, we're not to be a parrot. We're to be a Christian, which means we are filled with his spirit. Oh, I want that for you. Again, as Ian Thomas said, it takes God to be a man. Man, that is, as God intended man to be. God created man to be inhabited by God for God. Oh, I love that quote by Ian Thomas. Well, know that I am cheering you on down this endless frontier of knowing Jesus and being wrapped up in his presence and not only delighting yourself in being focused upon him, but building your life upon and centered around him and him alone. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including a video version of this teaching session, including a list of kind of my notes that I used to walk through it, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 74 for episode number 74. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.